0: I'm David Brown, and this is the Soyuz Podcast. Dating back to 2009, Andreas Paleologos, better known as the lovable synth guru Cuckoo, began uploading videos to his current YouTube page. What started off as mostly dance videos and clips from his live shows eventually morphed into one of the most popular synth tutorial channels, amassing over 20 million views. He's most known for doing demos of noteworthy synth models, but also releases his own original music and has been a user of Soyuz mics since 2019. I'll be talking to Cuckoo today about a variety of topics. From his early days as a composer to how he made his channel a full-time occupation, and his thoughts on all things synthesizer-related. Hi, Cuckoo. How's it going, man? Yeah, It's going well. It's good to see you again. But I've heard your name came about in the mid-2000s because your regular name was too hard for people to say or spell. Is that true? Yeah, well,
1: I, I, it's not like I made a, 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 a poll or anything. Like, who can spell my surname? But I just felt like... Every time growing up with the name Paleologos and not living in Greece, where everyone could spell it, uh, I had to spell it out every time. So I felt like Andreas Paleologos, nobody will remember or be able to even search that. So I, I drew from my, my roots uh, every summer I spent on Crete Island with my dad uh, growing up. And uh, he had a friend who had a really nice bar called Cuckoo, (laughs) the Cuckoo Bar. And uh, when I was a kid growing up, my dad used to run restaurants and sometimes bars. And whenever he was wrapping up work, um, like late night, maybe like one o'clock at night, doing everything, the accounting and uh, taking us kids for a walk, uh, far too late for us kids to go for a walk uh, after midnight and he said hi to everyone in the like tourist streets and then we ended up at cuckoo bar a lot of times far too young to end up in such a place but every other place had like techno music and dance music and popular you know radio dance music but cuckoo bar Yanis, who was the the manager of the bar he uh, he opted for much nicer, cosier, yeah, it was like probably Egyptian jazz and it was calypso, it was totally unrelated to what was fashionable and hot back then in the 90s and or 80s and 90s, I'd say. And so I always felt like coming there was like an oasis of music and getting to know something t- completely different. And growing up, I was always very musically receptive. Like music hit me like a, yeah, hit me really hard. So listening to music at Cuckoo Bar represented like something different and something very nice. So
0: I'm now- so, I'm so both... glad to, to, to finally have that mystery solved. Cause I actually always yeah. wondered like, it's such a great name and it actually suits you so well in a way. Maybe it's just because I've always known you as that. But yeah, that's a beautiful story.
1: Uh, thanks. And now I kind of carry the heritage uh, in secret of the Cuckoo Bar. And they're both, both gone now, my father and Yanis, uh, a long time ago. The bar kind of continued for a couple of generations, not generations, but iterations. And someone else took over the name and took it to another village or a city on in Crete Island. But last time I was there I tried to see if it was still around but it was closed. So yeah, no. I think I think I'm the true cuckoo now.
0: <laughs> yes, and thus the name of your channel True Cuckoo. You you most definitely are the true cuckoo. Prior to your YouTube channel, you were a composer in the two thousands, whether for children's series like I'm gonna mispronounce this, Like or PC games like forgive me big flugplan plaid med mule mek. <laughs> yeah what were you doing in the 80s and 90s that sent you on that path uh yeah good questions
1: lykke uh, means happiness in norwegian mm. and uh i was mainly i was animating that coming i, I used to work as an animator as full time job and uh when animation it was it like a two two man team we made ten episode I did animation and music and my colleague uh, Ingvild, she made the the story and direction and uh, and the other one big Flieg plan Mulemek, it's like a, built on a based on a kid's book build airplanes aircraft with Mulemek, it's a, a name and didn't do the music there I? I? can't actually remember I, I was animator and like 2D artist uh, yeah the, the the designer for the 2D art but um, and that was like animation and game design uh, in the middle there but growing up I played a lot of video games and I was dreaming about making video games and I was Watching not a lot of animation and cartoons, I'd say. We didn't have any fancy TV networks. We had like two channels and they only showed animation like once a week or something. (laughs) Not like today where you could just overload and drown. And But growing up, I was like animation. That was so important to me. Animation, video games, and music. Those were kind of my three.
0: And skateboarding. If I'm and skateboarding, yeah
1: not super hardcore, but yeah skateboarding I was' an active you kid. had some
0: skills, man. I've seen you even you know <laughs> bust in some kick flips uh, not yeah, that long sure. ago yeah you also worked as a visual artist and animator on children's shows, comic books and art installations. How did you get involved in such projects
1: um when I first started working like my first job as a I don't know nineteen year old I started working with what was then called multimedia, which is now a retired word which um, <laughs> with animation and interactive co- content and online started to take shape then and we started to make yeah interactive content online and and then I, I applied for um a composition uh music and university. I was not accepted and started working instead and then a couple of years later or two years later I applied at the art university for animation and was accepted so sometimes it's like yeah you you need to just follow up on what's being given to you and uh, animation was the first university where I was accepted so it was only natural for me to take take that step. But um, afterwards, I think I did a lot of like music videos for friends and we managed to raise some budget for it. Not much, but enough to keep me going. Uh, but I think I took it to a much more interesting place where I started to make an, like real-time visuals for contemporary music, which I was doing for a couple of years here in Norway after I moved here. And... Uh, I was always thinking, looking at the jazz musicians and contemporary musicians in awe, thinking like they can take it such a, a turn in every, any time and just throw everything on its side and take a new direction. And I wanted to kind of match that with uh, visuals. And uh, so I developed a sort of half-pre-produced visual thing where I could also... Whenever I wanted make illustration illustrations in real time, I was doing a lot of that digitally, but I very quickly realized that I wanted to do it under the camera, so I created a sort of a loop solution where i could whenever I wanted to loop anything I did under the camera, I could prepare like a transparent films with a draw on and like move them so that I couldn't see my hands, make a loop of that, and then make another loop on top of that, and make kind of layered loops, and then kind of fade in a pre-animated video layer, and kind of match match the music in real time.
0: Very and, cool. Uh, yeah, that was. I a think of fun. you. I think you may have answered um, the next question. Well, not really. It says, "What was it like attending Kunstfach? in the 90s the swedish university for arts and crafts is that the yeah
1: yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean uh animation was the the newest faculty at the Konstvak, and it's um it was in its infancy kind of so when i started it had a one-year course and i took that course and after that year i was working at the university as a what's the word, like amanuensis, uh, uh, an assisting teacher Uh with no teacher background. (laughs) But I was kind of working there, trying to help them digitize the animation tools to make it more efficient. But it was still like hand-drawn animation and handmade animation. And then a couple of years later, I came back because they've They'd um, initiated the second year, so I really wanted to, to get back in the university. Took the second year and did the same thing again. I worked there for another year afterwards. Uh, it was, I think, going to the university is a time where you, uh, as a, especially when you're young, you can just go heads on, full on, be a 100% nerd in whatever it is you're want to do that, and uh, I, I wasn't the kind of guy to just sit down and wait for for my assignments and then do the assignments and then go go home I, I lived there I was there day and night at the university did all the stuff I could I loved it
0: oh this is an interesting one I wanted to ask you this uh what took you to Norway in 2005 and why did you relocate there from Sweden I grew up in Norrköping,
1: which is a, a medium sized town in Sweden. It, it's a nice town, but it's not like Stockholm or any like big, big city with lots of, lots of offerings in terms of uh, creative outlets, at least back then. Now it's, it's getting there, but uh, at some point I had a girlfriend from Oslo and uh, I was thinking I, I've had like long distance relations f- before and it never really worked out. So yeah, let's just move there. Not not on a whim, but I decided quite early that, you know, let's move there and see, give it a, a really good shot. For and a girl,
0: that's, that's yeah, like the best reason. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. And that was 2005 mm. and uh, 1st of April, <laughs> April Fool's Day. <laughs> wow, and then, yeah, I stayed there, and it was in Oslo where I kind of grew up, matured in my yeah, freelance and creativity, and there were so many opportunities opening up after I moved here so after we broke up, like three years later, it was Oslo was my town, and i I stayed, and now I have a family here, so now it's I'm going to stay.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I visited you there, it definitely seemed like, you know, it was your town for sure. From what you said in the past, there was a point in the 2010s where you intended to quit music. So you made a song called Goodbye for your channel, but it got so many positive comments that you changed your mind. It
1: is it is true, and it's still out there to to relive that video. And I've made... I made an album, like my first full album, and I thought, like, yeah, this is gonna be the thing. I worked really hard, and released it. Nothing happened. Um, Nobody cared about the album. Nobody knew about me. So, I mean, in retrospect, it's it was to be expected. But then, you know, you're into it, and like, why doesn't anyone find this? Why why doesn't anyone listen to it? But and then YouTube, I started to do some stuff on YouTube, but at some point I felt like, I think maybe I should just quit music, let the musicians, professionals do their stuff and I'll stick to animation. And at some point, I uh, it was just around that time that I made that video, which was actually an expression of how I felt. And uh, yeah, it's time to say goodbye was the song.
0: And ironically, it, it was the catalyst for you not to say goodbye.
1: Yeah, it was. But also, I, I think I learned something there. Like, when you're lowering all your facets or any, everything that you might have built up around you to kind of shield yourself from who you really are, where you, where you just let everything down, you're fully vulnerable, you just show how you feel for real. And then that's when you start communicating, and people relate to, and yeah. uh, I think that was what happened there. And maybe it was also a, a little reminder for me to just be more more of myself. Of course, you can amplify yourself, but just yeah, tell the real stories, uh, convey the real emotions.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's that's. I've often said that um, I think that the highest duty maybe or potential opportunity for art and music and literature and and all of the various ways we have to express ourselves is to help other people feel less alone in the world. And I think that's only possible when you do open up in the way that you just described instead of, you know, We, Like you said, we build up this story of ourselves and how things should go and expectations and all of this and ego. There's always ego and fear behind it. And unless we can strip that away, it's very difficult for that pure energy to come through. Um, Is it true that one of your OP1 videos is what helped boost the popularity of your channel? Uh,
1: Yeah, I think so. Maybe not like a specific one, but many of them, I think around the time when the OP-1 came out was, I I, I caught like word of the OP-1 being in development and, uh, and, and I was hyping myself up for maybe two years prior to the release. So when it came out, instantly bought it and, and it kind of changed, I mean, it's kind of cliche to say it changed the way I make music or it changed everything, but it changed something. It brought some sort of of joy back into making music that maybe I hadn't had for a while, I, I think. And uh, that joy definitely transferred into my videos, and I just loved fiddling with it and explaining how I did stuff and... At some point, I, I realized that maybe I'm actually making some sort of tutorials here without really realizing. because so I just like to explain to people, help people out and tell them how it, stuff
0: It's works. an amazing device. I mean, I, 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 unlike you, I'm somebody who's very technically challenged when it comes to actually learning how to correctly use something like a synthesizer or a sequencer or a drum machine yeah. or anything. But from a design perspective, uh, it's absolutely beautiful. It's just an iconic design. And for me, that's very important. Like if something's a physical object, something that Mm -hmm. you need to interact with in this 3d world that we live in, it's so important that it reflect. The spirit of what it is or what it's intended to do and, and you know, Obviously, teenage engineering are fantastic designers. Um, Yeah,
1: I think maybe uh, I'd put the like Jesper, the the lead designer and CEO. I'd put him up there as one of the like top industrial designers of the modern age. I would agree. Yeah, up there with Joni Ive and maybe other names that I don't know, but. It's yeah, fantastic. I would agree.
0: I had a meeting with him. Oh God, when was it? it? I wonder if it was on the same trip when I visited you in Oslo. It was probably at around the same time, maybe 2018, yeah, so. something like that. I think you were the one that actually introduced me to him. And, uh, yeah,
1: I sent a few emails.
0: Yeah. And we had a, we had a nice lunch and, uh, it was back when I was developing the Tula mic. And I think the Tula mic at that time was literally a cigarette pack that I had shaped into the shape of a Tula and covered with, uh, tin foil, like aluminum yeah. foil. <laughs> <laughs> so it was in its very, it was its real infancy. And, um, yeah he he gave me a lot of great advice and uh i respect him a lot as a company um so you quit your day job around 2016 and now run your channel full-time
1: yes that is correct i uh, made my my last um animated short which was uh, a lot of work we tried to raise funding for for kind of employing a little team, maybe a team of five, six people. Um, But we ended up kind of, we couldn't reach the numbers we wanted. So I was in this position where I I had to think, okay, either we scrap the projects now or I do everything myself. And uh, I did everything myself and uh, I kind of burnt out a little bit, From animation and it was a good timing also with my youtube channel that had gained enough popularity that i could kind of start with the help of patreon uh start running it full time
0: yeah well i'm glad you did it's uh it's a great channel um your entry into electronic music seems to have come by way of video games like the Sega Mega Drive and computers like the Amiga. Can you talk about the influence of those units and how much their sound influences your current music?
1: Yeah, sure. I I was, as I told you before, like I loved video games as a kid. I still do, but not to the same extent. It takes a lot of time, especially modern video games. They're huge, so... Need to dedicate even more time today uh, with games but back then i grew up at the same time as video games kind of caught on and started to get better and better and the sega mega drive was special to me because um, of the sound the sound chip that it's using it uh, was a kind of rudimentary design yamaha in in the In the spirit of the DX7, uh, so an FM synth chip that just sounded totally alien and really cool, but it was much more limited than the DX7, which is more kind of crisp and uh, precise. Uh, But that sound, just from the first time I heard it, I was without even reflecting on that it's a synthesizer in there, I just felt like, whoa, the sound is so cool. What an incredible incredible soundtracks and uh, uh, some friends of mine we with some sometimes challenges to each other like trying to play the tunes that we heard on the on the in the games on the piano like oh, which game is this Listen to this and had kind of a little uh, challenge uh, and a fun music game and yeah having that in the back of my head at some point, I got the Amiga, tra- an Amiga Tracker, a music program for making music, uh, and uh, yeah, that was probably the first time I started making real music on the computer. Uh, some friends of mine were also into into gaming, and some uh, another friend he was a programmer. So we made a little team and started to make some little games, homebrew games just for the fun of it. But yeah, fast forwarding to when I started to make my own my own music. Yeah. It's definitely, you know, it's a, around the time when you define something very core in yourself uh really? probably in your teenage
0: years. It definitely and
1: that stays. That stays. It and really it does. It's like yeah. a,
0: a, when you're that age, everything enters you so completely. And yeah. on the one side, it's incredible and it's inspiring. On the other side, it's kind of painful sometimes. Mm. But I, I I agree completely. It 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 informs what you do for the rest of your life. You know, in my case. I've written a million songs about Los Angeles in the eighties, you know, like, uh, (laughs) 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 when it comes to reviewing new synths, how do you go about making sense of them without reading the manual? Do you not read manuals?
1: Very rarely, very rarely. Almost never. I love, I mean, if you, if you know a couple of synthesizers and, and machines, you understand the concepts. And, uh, and then the concepts are in, it's kind of the same or similar in most sense. It's just how do they present them all. Uh, but sometimes something comes along that is a little bit different. Or maybe it doesn't have a, have a good screen, so it doesn't present much information on the screen. And then uh, I uh, quickly check out the manual. Uh huh. Especially digital, digital manuals with search function. Right, that's the best.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I, I have a question. Uh, a side note: uh, Have you ever heard of a company called Soma? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sure.
0: The the owner and the I guess he's the the main creator of their products. Vlad Kramer is yeah. um, somebody who I have great respect for and who really had a. An enormous effect on a couple of products that I developed, the the launcher being one of them. Yeah. We worked for two years on that thing uh, and were unable to achieve the sound I was looking for. Yeah. And just by chance, uh we happened to be testing the fifth or sixth iteration of it in a studio in Moscow, and he happened to be there to show us something he'd been working on. And again, I rejected it. I said it doesn't sound right. And 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 he came up to me and he said, "I know what you're looking for, and I know how to get it." And he, we sent him the schematics, and he made certain suggestions that were absolutely the key to to achieve what we were trying to achieve. And he did the same thing with the Tula mic. The Tula mic yeah. was not sounding the way I wanted it to. And I said, "Vlad, can I hire you to help with this?" And he's like, "David." Uh, I'm really busy, man. I I can't, but send it, send it, send me what you have. I'll see what I can do. And same thing, he made a few key suggestions that were just the key, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Remember the Tula where where you were probably after you've been in contact with him and he made his changes, where you then were. Kind of impressed by how good it could sound, yeah. Because prior to that, it probably didn't sound very good. It did not prior to now. You came out like it's actually incredible how it sounds now, even if it's uh, if it's another type of technology than you're usually. It
0: was a a huge relief, let me tell you. (laughs) I've heard that another part of your work is beta testing on new products and sending feedback to new developers. I can say that. For sure, from personal experience, <laughs> how did that come about, and what sorts of developers have you worked with? Uh,
1: that is uh, something I do uh, whenever I have a connection with a company that I I like personally. It's very I'm not very professional uh, because I always let like a personal. Emotions may become first. So, if there is a company or some people working with something, I just like these people. We have a good connection, and uh, if I'm then also uh, hyped about what they're developing, it's uh, sometimes the case that I can join in early on and be a be a beta tester. And it's very rare. No, it's always unpaid work beta testing I mean there is internal beta testing uh, within the company to a certain point and then it's external beta testing where they reach out to a select group of people maybe t- depending on on the size and scope of the project uh, but like with uh, with Teenage Engineering I've been beta testing the OPZ and the Open one field and also I've been beta testing some software updates uh, before they go live. And, um, and yeah, with the Open one field, I think I was, uh, at least they told me so, I was the first external tester. It was actually before the beta period. And uh, um, yeah, and then uh, a couple of months later, uh, we, we grew as an external beta team maybe uh, around 20 or 30 external testers or so
0: wow yeah it must it must require a lot of testing before releasing something that complex
1: yeah and i'm just one person so it's very i, I need to select what where i direct my time because i can't do everything and uh, sometimes i get approached by a lot of people and i just I have to turn a lot of stuff down because I don't have the time to do everything, but even if it's like really cool stuff.
0: Dan, yeah, no, you, you definitely keep a, a busy schedule. Uh, as someone who's reviewed countless synths, what have you found to be the biggest differences between modern synth companies of the last 13 years and previous companies of the 80s through the 2000s? Are you seeing anything novel in the new designs that is groundbreaking?
1: I think the future holds a lot of promise and one thing that teenage engineering has shown is that completing the package with a brilliant user interface in it and a user experience is uh, is something that can be done now with modern programming and modern user interfaces the modern graphics and screens and stuff and, and I think there are real experts on, on I, I wouldn't say dumbing down, but like compressing the user experience into something very, very efficient and com- yeah, concise. And I think that's something that is currently uh, groundbreaking, I'd say. Not everyone is up to standards, but the ones that stand out, they have like really, really great user experiences, user interfaces. But sound-wise, I think maybe on a general note, we have lost something uh, over the years. Uh, Stuff is becoming more and more refined and more and more precise in terms of audio rendition. It's so digital, everything. And even analog circuitry today tends to be overly precise. And maybe there's something getting lost in there but I don't have much old gear. I just have like a, like the Sega Mega Drive synth called the Mega FM, which has the same chip from the Sega Mega Drive. It's actually that chip. It's not being emulated. It's, it's the real deal. And it instantly has that vibe that imprecise It's taking a lot of space. It's just going into the room and just says, hello, I'm here. And uh, I'm, I'm um, something rather than just a rendition of something. And uh, I think one thing that I really, really look forward to that I think is holding a lot of promise is physical modeling. I think that is something I would like to see more of in uh, in modern synthesizers and
0: yeah. Yeah, uh, I agree that um we live we live in an age right now where there is so much precision, so much high definition, so many l- almost limitless options that uh, I see it with with a lot of young people. like my daughter suddenly one day started pulling out these old point and shoot cameras that had been sitting in the drawer for twenty years and you know <laughs> started taking photos with that, or my son started using like uh, film, disposable cameras, and I think that at a certain point, the soul yearns for a level of imprecision and a level mm. of um, what's the word, like randomness, maybe you know, mm. like that that some of the old circuitry and and and, and things like that could could provide. The microphones that you work with, you,
1: you are using older technologies, right? Absolutely. But you're kind of modernizing maybe the manufacturing.
0: No, actually not like it. Okay. We can talk about Soyuz a little bit. I, my whole idea with this podcast (laughs) is to not have it be like an infomercial, but you are, you are definitely a, a great supporter of the brand and the concept behind the mics are that A, they not be copies of anything. They're not like a... Because that's a, that's a whole other thing. Like, yeah. um, But B, that they are made in the old way. So yeah. virtually all of uh, our, our microphones are made on manual lathes by master machinists. And mm. in Russia, a master machinist is a guy who's essentially gone to the University of Machining. And they mm. have... They literally have, it's like a Super Bowl of machinists every year in Russia, where they get like the most hot shit machinists from all the different factories all over Russia, and they put them all in one big place with all the same lathes, give them all the same drawings, and then they all have the same amount of time to machine something, and then one guy is crowned like, you know, king machinist of Russia, so they, they have a level of expertise that is just unreal, and... It's my understanding that that with capsules specifically, there's a kind of a dark art. Like, logically, you would think that, you know, a CNC machine, a modern CNC machine, should be able to do better what used to be done by people. But it's seemingly not the case. Uh, Having a very, very well-made and finely-tuned manual lathe that's operated by a high level machinist is going to give you a better result than a cnc lathe that's probably controversial if it is let me know in the comments but uh, (laughs) that's that's been my understanding and that's what we do we have one lathe that we had to fly our machinist three times to the town where they made them to test it because they can't guarantee that level of accuracy yeah the first two we didn't hit, didn't didn't make the grade. The third one did, and that is the only one that we use for cutting capsules. Yeah. So, back to what you were talking about, this missing thing, I think that it's very real, and I think that people appreciate it, uh, and and that's what we try to try to pack into our mics.
1: Yeah, it's also every time I I design uh, sound packs and and uh, like synth patches. I'm always trying to search for that specific little sizzle or presence or um, identity and give the sounds a real, real uh, character. And it's always the sum of many, many small, small combinations and to find that precise balance that's, uh, you yeah. know,
0: yeah, the, the, somebody once told me uh, that the human ear is capable of identifying literally millions of variations in a given sound. And that's, you know, why babies can recognize their mother's voice in, amongst thousands of other voices. Um, so that being said, like with microphones, for example you can discuss high frequencies, low frequencies, mids, uh, you know, EQ curves, all these things. But at the end of the day, the way that we decide on the final version of a mic is we we, we get to our engineers to make five versions, sometimes 10 versions. Then we go into the studio and test them and then just listen. Because it's, it's what you said. Like, no one knows exactly what's going to, end up with that sound that you're looking for with that, that thing that moves something inside of you, you know? And, um, yeah, anyway, I think it's, uh, I'm glad that, that we, we, we're of a like mind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Are there any software instruments you wish were turned into a hardware unit?
1: I, I'm a big fan of of a company called Plug. It's a Canadian, a French Canadian small company, and they're real experts on on uh, emulating older chips, and they're doing it so well. So they actually they preserve that little special sizzle of in a real accurate way, much more accurate than than any other thing I've heard. And um, I would love them to to make something hardware. But, you know, selling something, selling a software, it just duplicates itself. There is no, I mean, it takes a lot of time to develop. But once it's developed, it doesn't cost anything to sell a new unit. But making hardware is a, a lot of risk
0: oh god i i i can attest to that, yeah, hardware's hard, so they say, so that's okay, so plug is that what it's called
1: yeah Pl- plug plug uh, plug plug yeah,
0: okay, we'll put a link in the description yeah, and uh i i'm i'm curious to check that out
1: okay so, so yeah, that's the first thing that comes to mind
0: um uh, other than that uh, i don't know <laughs> so it's been three years since your not pop album. With your yeah. channel so popular, how are you able to balance reviewing scents with releasing your own music? A short answer would be that I
1: am not able to balance it, <laughs> but I'm trying. Uh, I think all of my music projects, mostly, they are. Um, it's it's like a project. It's it's coming from a live set. Every time, if like now I'm right where I'm starting to feel like, yeah, I should make a new live set. So the next time I perform, I want a new live set. And uh, when I start developing that live set, it will turn into something that I'm then later on thinking, well, maybe I should actually record this and make an album of it. But um yeah in terms of balancing that with with videos I, I can I feel like I can make anything that i I'm working on into a video. So if I'm making an album, I can make the process of making that album a, vid- a couple of videos. if I'm making a live set the thing, same thing there. and also if I'm learning something new that I'm excited about, I can make that into a couple of videos. So recently, um, the the expressive osmos came out, and it's a really special instrument. And I still haven't made a tutorial. I made a long video, but no tutorial. But I think maybe I should sit down with that and design a couple of sounds myself. It's a pretty complex sound engine, and make a tutorial on that. And by so the many, way
0: sorry to cut you off yeah uh, i love your i watched one of your between the videos videos recently and i really yeah. enjoyed it and it it reminded me of what you said earlier about opening up and letting people share these inner questions and conflicts that you experience as a human being
1: yeah thanks i, I was about to mention it when we talked about it and uh because there's something happening when I started making these between the videos, videos, a couple of, I'm I'm on number seven now, uh, because I'm always shooting them when I'm in a kind of, not distressed state, but somewhere in between projects, I don't really know what to do. Maybe I'm a little bit frustrated. I'm not really ready with stuff that I would like to be ready with and not not fully there to shoot another video. And then, okay, let's let's make a video and talk about how I feel right now. And the first time I made it, I felt like I was not sure if I was gonna release that video because it felt like, ah, I don't know, this is too private or maybe too, who am I to say all these things? Why would people care? But I released it and then it turns out uh, those kinds of videos, maybe they, they won't catch the m- most amount of views, but definitely the most amount of connection. Like you see in the comments, that people really respond to that and care about it. And it's a little bit the same thing that happened with that goodbye video with the OP1. Uh, like people really care and relate.
0: Yeah, I noticed in the comments that people seem genuinely grateful For it, And I think that uh, things like that are are so important now more than ever in a way, because with social media, people present this curated version of their lives. And then we compare our lives to the curated version of someone else's life and think, Mm -hmm. God, you know, I'm really a worthless piece of shit. Like, you know, I I, I wake up in the middle of the night and just think I can't, you know, and look at that person's just doing great, you know, so, so. Going back to the the bit about making people feel less alone in the world, I think something like a between the videos video makes people go, "Oh wow, Cuckoo, who you know is this incredible creative guy who makes these great videos, even he has these moments of where he's not inspired and he doesn't know what to do next." And you know, yeah, um, I want to ask you about your mirror because I love your lo-fi, low-tech <laughs> solution. To yeah. your face within a video. And I'm wondering if if that's an original idea or if you took it from somewhere or uh, how did it come about?
1: It's, uh, it's a, an original idea that just popped out of necessity. It was one day I was shooting a video. It also, it was kind of in, a, in between the video's state and had uh, the OP1... It was a shitty day. I felt shit like shit. And I had a, a shitty camera. I was thinking, oh, maybe I should shoot a video. I don't have time to set up a nice, a nice kind of uh, layout or anything. Just put the camera there. It was a really bad table, it looked shit. And I think, like, I had a little pocket mirror lying around. I just put it next to it, thinking, like, how can I get my face into the shot? Uh, because if I zoom out, it's it's too big, it, and then the synth is too small. And uh, I put a little mirror in there, just by chance I had it lying around, and felt like, yeah, that's that's a good idea, and then I can zoom in even further and still have my face there. That's great. So it became a kind of a visual logistics kind of solution-based, but it quickly became something I, I really enjoyed, also, I like these lo-fi solutions where there's no technology in, involved. It's just a, a mirror and it's there uh, because it becomes more true. It's becoming uh, more relatable, more easier to connect to. And uh, yeah, you just need to turn off any face recognition, um, from autofocus. Right, it's going to see the face.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Well, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant thing. I-, I love it. You know, something else I wanted to ask you about was um, back when I visited you in in Oslo. I think it was 2018. We yeah. took a really pleasant walk. Uh, you took me to that amazing sculpture garden. We walked down by the port, and neither of us could have imagined how different the world would be in a few years. And I think back sometimes to these moments, uh, pre March 2020, let's say, when I don't know that it's almost as if there was an innocence, there was a stability that I'm not sure we're ever going to really feel again. It's not really a question. I just would love to hear mm. your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think probably most, most people will. Live through some sort of big uh, change, but maybe that that was a, a big change that affected everyone in the world, whether you were living in a developed country in a, a, a not-that-developed country, and everyone was reminded of something. It could be good and bad. It could further that kind of... Um, yeah, it could push people away from each other. It could also get people closer to each other. It's a. It was a time. Yeah, when I think about the time before that, sure, it was maybe more innocent and spontaneous. But then again, turn time back 20 years, so you could say the same thing. Yeah. It was much more innocent prior to the internet.
0: Oh, God, uh, yes.
1: Yeah. Prior to the telephones, prior to the televisions. And there's probably a lot of these. And now, today, prior to AI, well, there's going to be like a lot of stuff.
0: It's a fascinating time to be alive because I, I think if you push it back even farther, if you go back 100 or 200 years, A person's life would have been virtually identical to their grandparents' life, you know? Mm -hmm. If they were farmers or if they were, you know, whatever, like pre-industrial revolution, like from generation to generation, things didn't really change that much. And we are living in a period of exponential development when, I mean, by the end of our lives, I'm not sure the world will even necessarily be recognizable um that said it's a very interesting time to be alive and to experience it and i think i was saying this to my son the other day i think that during times like this art in general music literature it's even more important people need it more than ever because they feel untethered yeah
1: yeah that's that's true and also i think uh right now with the the birth of widespread ai technology i think um it's a reminder it's a it's a challenge to us artists and creative creators that the ai is telling us and challenging us like all right we can we can do this now what can you do and it's kind of asking me to 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 really okay it's I can't be a slacker anymore. I can't just wiggle my way through it. I need to. I need to really define what it is, what it means to be a human, what it means to be a a human artist, and not just a, a parrot or a, to copycat anything. And it's. I, I'm not afraid of it. I'm kind of i uh, am I'm. I'm here for the the challenge.
0: Yeah, I am too. I agree completely. I think that. AI, no doubt, is um, an incredible thing, and I think in many ways may be... I'm glad we're on this subject, by the way, because I think it's impossible to avoid in 2023. Yeah. But I think that um, it is most likely just sort of the next phase in the evolutionary process. And I read a book a long time ago called um, What Technology Wants, and one of the main points it was trying to make was that there's no difference between technological evolution and biological evolution, that it's, that one is an extension of the other. And, um, I have this kind of obsession. I've had it for years that maybe it's going to be a good thing. Maybe, maybe AIs will have our best traits, our poetic traits, our empathetic traits, but they won't have the parts of us that are kind of left over from the caveman days when, you know, you needed to be able to murder somebody and, you know, um, maybe they'll be better than we are. Maybe they'll, uh, maybe they won't want to destroy us. Maybe they'll think we're really cute, you know, yeah. and, and love us in a way. Yeah. Maybe they'll have the same questions we have. Where did, who created all this? What exists way out there? Maybe they'll be able to go way out there and check it well, out, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So I'm with you. I'm not I'm not afraid of it. I'm not um, opposed to it. I think that it's it, it's what's happening. And and I also think that there are things that are uniquely human and that as artists, it's our job to channel whatever that is and to um, celebrate that. Maybe this is the, the the fading of this period of consciousness and it needs to be celebrated and documented and you know what does your current studio setup look like do you have an overflow of synths because of the work you do with your channel uh yeah my studio
1: i have designed my studio not to be a music only studio but to be an open studio for creative work so i don't have ev- everything out at, at all times i have a covered I designed myself with a lot of synths and ex- ex- equipment. Far too many cameras and these two pianos here. I see
0: an Una corda in the background.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love it. I could turn on the, let's see, I could actually turn on the sound from it. Um, I muted it. There we should. <laughs> Oops, here yeah.
0: I you know Tuku, I'm a huge fan of your piano playing. Whenever, <laughs> whenever you play piano in your videos, there's something kind of fin de secla, i I'm probably mispronouncing that, but like kind of Eric Satie-esque, just Thanks. very romantic and and uh, melancholy. It's just my kind of stuff. I, I I love it. I really appreciate
1: it. I think I was about to mention Eric Satie just a moment ago uh, when we were talking about what it was like back, back in time, because he, when you hear his songs, they're so, they're, well, they're timeless, but if I was reminded of it because a pianist friend of mine, uh, Nara Sol, she is a great creator, she, uh, she made a, a video on Eric Satie and mentioned that, you know, at the same time that he wrote these pieces other composers sounded like this and it's like oh oh that's right he's not from the from the 20th century oh that's right he's actually from the 19th century uh because that's uh he was so disconnected from everything else going on in the music scene everything else sounded like romantics and uh you know tchaikovsky and maybe late um yeah, like big orchestral uh massive stuff, and then here comes Satie making this very melancholic, almost kind of jazzy, like a hundred years before jazz, or maybe not a hundred, but yeah
0: yeah he yeah. he 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 captures for me this uh. I I think since I was a kid, maybe because I grew up in like a bad part of Los Angeles and, you know, kind of felt somewhat constantly under threat. I always had this desire uh, for like a cozy corner of the galaxy, you know, like this and that his music sounds like that. It sounds Mm -hmm. like this place of repose, you know, in a chaotic world, you know. Um, and, and and yeah, and your 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 playing reminds me of that as well. It really does. Um, I think it's
1: a it's the combination of my musical core and also my playing ability. Because I'm not a pianist. I'm not a trained pianist. So there's a limit to what I can accomplish, at, like physically. <laughs>
0: Uh, sometimes so, that can be great
1: yeah yeah so I need to find a, a balance there between playing my music uh, but I need to keep it simple enough so that I can play it but I would love to to actually write piano pieces for someone else to play where I can maybe go a, a couple of steps forward where I couldn't keep up with the techniques required but um uh, I really, really enjoy playing like serene, simple, and uh, that stuff, melodic. Uh,
0: What Soyuz mics have you been making use of in your videos and music making?
1: I uh, I, have used three mics. The first time I came in contact with Soyuz was at um, uh, an electronic music fair, uh, and I was walking past the 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 mic stand uh, with Soyuz a couple of times. They were trying to me trying to get me to come listen to it, but I was kind of in my electronic music space, and I well, I don't have time for that now. But then I I gave it a shot, listened to the music, uh, to the microphones, and the one that caught my attention uh, much more than all of the other mics was the uh, the O seventeen, probably the the tube and uh, that was on display at the the fair and it sounded so incredibly it yeah it had that quality that we were speaking about earlier that it was it had a character from what I could hear in the from the noisy uh, convention hall it it captured my voice in a way that I've I hadn't heard in any other microphones that I've tried it's not that I tried every microphone, but I've tried a fair deal of microphones, and every time I come up with, uh, I have to do a lot of little tweaks on the EQ, and then it turns out maybe I'm ruining the sound rather than helping it. So, but with this one, I, f- I felt like, wow, it, I, it, this has something special. It's a glistening, sizzling tone somewhere in there. The mumbling frequencies are are managed and mumbling is not taking over that with some of the other microphones so that was definitely my my um not a wake-up call but uh like a hello we are soyuz we sound like this and i was, oh i'm i'm here for it wow now i have a favorite favorite microphone company wow cool and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I had the opportunity to borrow the 017 for a couple of months. So that was my first experience with um, with an actual Soyuz mic. So I was using it for the not pop album, um, but maybe not in the way that you would think with conventional music production because it, it wasn't an album at the time. It was a live set. So I was doing all of these recordings of my voice uh, for the little synthesizer, the uh, the OPZ. So all of these, I chopped up all of the musical voice clips into a format that I could uh, prop up into the OPZ and perform my whole set on the OPZ with Soyuz recorded vocals. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And uh, yeah, it sounded really good. And... um, and and then, it is one of the pricier microphones that you offer, so I couldn't really afford to to buy it at the time. Uh, but then later on, I bought the the 13 FET microphones, and those have been my go to microphones for anything acoustic, especially like pianos and and um, yeah other things too. But mostly pianos and voice recordings too for YouTube. But then fast forward to last year, and uh, the 1973 came out, which has to my ears, maybe a little bit more modern sound, but still very affordable. Uh, and still that Soyuz sizzle, no mumbling. Uh, it's articulate, but very flattering. Something with my voice that is so extremely compatible with it. And I've always thought that, One of the reasons why it sounds so good on my voice is because from what I understand you, you're the golden ears of of Soyuz, and you probably use your voice as a testing ground a a lot more than other voices. Yeah. And having a male voice, a a calm male voice uh, for testing is gonna pinpoint these mumbling frequencies which I always react very negatively to, like if, you know, these frequencies, when they're not contained, it just sounds so muddy, and it's very difficult to handle that with EQ. You can tone it down, but it's not the same thing as having a, a real microphone capture it in in a flattering way from the start. Absolutely. So, yeah.
0: Well, it's so great right to hear. Yeah. Thanks you, Kuku. It's wonderful here. It's funny. I'll share just a little funny story uh, about uh, our setup. Um, our capsule master is named Vladimir, and he's uh, an absolute genius. And he was trained. He was trained by a guy uh, named Alexander, who is from a technical institute in Moscow, who's like just a legendary capsule engineer. And, uh, when we first, um, developed the 17 tube, uh, we sent it to different people to Nigel Godrich, to Al Schmidt, different people. And Nigel just freaked out and loved it so much. And, and I said, Nigel, listen, he wanted to buy two of them. And I said, okay, c- please send me back the one that you tested and then we'll, we'll send you a new pair so we use that as our reference mic as, uh, for the 17. And Vladimir's way of testing each mic that goes out, each 17, is he sings this old folk song very softly with headphones on into the original one and then into the one that he's testing back and forth like that. And I, I'm a real believer that you, you have to test with your ears at the mm-hmm. end of the day, like you can look at charts and whatnot, but at the end of the day, it's, that's what, that's what the end result's going to be. So that's what, what the process, uh, should also be. Let's end things off with some rapid fire questions based on your synth expertise. Are right. you ready? Yeah, sure. Okay. What would you say is the best all purpose synth that works in a variety of situations?
1: Dang. that's well, impossible well. <laughs> <laughs> I think it needs to be kind of divided up to a couple of categories okay. like the OP1 field is for me uh, like the king of portable all Uh you have it with you and you can make a, a, yeah a lot of stuff with just the OP1 field and the the reason why I said field and not the OP1 original is because the the sound quality of the field is heavily updated uh, compared to the original. So it sounds much more refined, much more uh, mature. It sounds very, very good. And um, yeah, that would be like the the king of the portable all-rounder. Um, then we have, as a gig keyboard player, you would like a synth that can make a v- variety of great synth sounds but also, they could play samples because maybe you're playing keys for a uh, for a band that has a specific sound, and you make a sample library that you need to play with. But also have like synth layers in, inside of it. And I would say that the Nord Wave 2 well would fit really nicely into there. Nord they're making very easy to use, elegant synths, and the Nord Wave 2 has a really super nice keyboard. Uh, so as a Touring musician, having a nice key bed is very, very important, I think. And also you can layer out uh, yeah, you can make layers and specific samples on specific keys and stuff. Yeah, perfect. It, it's something I really enjoy. But then there is that in between there, we have the sequencer based sense, which I am a big fan of, and I think a sequencer based performance synth, the one that I'm I'm digging right now is the, the Digitone from Electron. It's an FM synthesizer with the same kind of sound concept as a Sega, Sega Mega Drive. So the Digitone is something I truly enjoy. Uh, it has a, a wacky sound, but I've, I'm performing with the Digitone alone and it's, uh, it's super fun. So for me, like that, that a great sequencer is something that I truly enjoy to compose and produce and perform with.
0: Okay, uh, fantastic! You heard it here, straight from the mouth of Cuckoo. And now, your top two monophonic synths.
1: Ooh, monophonic. I th- I feel like most of the stuff that I have is is yeah, polyphonic and modern. And, but from what I have, I think the matriarch by Moog is the coolest monophonic. It's, it is paraphonic, but it's up to you to make use of that. It's, it is a monophonic signal flow, but you can kind of split it up in some various ways. And I think that's a really cool platform to be super creative with. Another monophonic synth that I, I haven't used much, but I have it, and I think it sounds much better than what you would like to think is the the um, Bass Station Two by Novation. It's just a super nice sounding monophonic synth. They made a different version of of maybe not the exact same thing, but it's uh, what's it called again? M- mono Station, I think, or something that is not in production anymore, which was really cool too. But the bass station too, sounds great.
0: Perfect. Now, best drum synthesizer?
1: Ooh. I think I would have to go with, uh, from experience, the analog rhythm from Electron. Uh, It's very versatile. You can mix in both samples and analog analog, um, drum synthesis. And it's so rich, so you can also make full performances with only that and uh, be creative with how you work with samples and analytic synthesis.
0: Okay. Most, I think I know, most innovative hardware synth company.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I would like to say teenage engineering because I think they they don't care about... Um, what people would think, they just go for their dream. It's like, all right, we want to make this insanely well constructed, super well designed thing. And uh, then they just go for it. And I think from what I understand, they encourage everyone in the team to do their best. Man. And it,
0: yeah. Yeah. I'd I say. would agree. I would also do a shout-out to SOMA, though, because they, they yeah. created a thing that all it does is pick up radio frequencies and ele- yeah. electromagnetic frequencies. They also seem like they don't design to try to match any trends. They just make weird, cool shit. But I, I think
1: also that you should... It's It's very difficult to pick one. You can kind of divide it up into best forward-thinking... Or best design, but also then it comes to sheer sound quality. Then, and I would really like to highlight Expressive E and Haken Audio uh-huh. because sound quality and the sound design is something completely different from everyone else. There is a, it's really really special sound that they can produce.
0: What about the most impressive soft synth? I think there's a lot of super
1: ambitious synths and a lot of them are very impressive. Like there is physical modeling pianos that are really impressive. Uh, but I think maybe from a personal preference, I'll go back to Plug because if you check out their their videos, they're calling their, their whole, everything that they're doing is Uh, A preservation project they want to preserve all the old sounds you know when all the chips are gone you can't make these sounds anymore so they want to preserve that sound and make sure that we can still make the sounds and there's something about the painstaking uh, route that they take in order to to map everything out of the hardware and then come up with truly truly size algorithm to recreate so I would like to make a shout out to them
0: yeah we'll definitely put a, a link in the description to plug I, I'm very curious to check them out as well most unconventional slash quirky yet functional synth mm. Mm. I would say
1: there is a, a smaller company maybe just one person I'm not entirely sure maybe two that's called uh, twisted electron, and they have uh, recently made a smaller synth called uh, Blast Beats, and it's a synth based on a chip found in an older audio card called um, a Sound Blaster from from PCs from the nineties, and uh, those. That machine, I can show you. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> Where is it? Uh, right here somewhere. So this is a blast beats and it's a, it's a sequencer sort of, you could kind of compare it to the Digitone in that it is an FM synthesizer. But uh, it is based on that chip, which has a lot of limitations, but also a lot of, uh, a lot of character, so much character. So it's, it's super fun to work with something like this. And also to work with those hardware limitations and uh, maybe the way it's switching between waveforms is kind of a little bit glitchy. And yeah, very functional, very limited, and I love that I'm uh, doing this.
0: Awesome. Most impressive synth of the 90s?
1: Ooh, the 90s. I think even though I'm I'm a real synth nerd, I'm not like
0: a... You're bad with dates, like me. I'm I'm bad with dates,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, But I'm also, I'm not a collector of old gear. Yeah, sure. So I don't really know everything from back then, but I could highlight like my first actual synth which is the Korg M1. Um, It's not impressive, but when I chose my first synth, I went to the music store, tried everything in the stores, and I was thinking, which one is the one for me? And all the time, came back to the Korg M1, and it was because of the sequencer. It has an onboard eight track, was it eight? I think six or eight track sequencer, where I could play my own and record my own little adventure music <laughs> and that really impressed me back then that it has a had a really nice real-time sequencer on board but sound wise maybe not the most most impressive i heard a lot of a lot of cool other stuff
0: <laughs> well cuckoo this has just been a real pleasure for me man i i appreciate you taking the time and uh You know, you're always welcome here in Barcelona at, at my studio and, uh, uh, yeah, man, you're just one of my favorite people to chat with and eat sushi with, and, you know, just hang out with. You have a very calming and, uh, pleasant personality and I really respect everything that you're doing.
1: Uh, Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Uh, it's Yeah. Without you, there wouldn't be a Soyuz, and uh, yeah, I'm really happy we we, uh, got to meet, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate all the stuff that you're doing.
0: Thanks, man. Well, thank you for joining, everybody. If you've liked this video, uh, consider subscribing to the channel, giving it a thumbs up, and as I said, we're going to put all the links in the description for Cuckoo's music, obviously for his YouTube channel. For all the gear that we talked about, and uh, who knows, maybe a few other things we touched on. It was a it was a great conversation, and uh, we'll see you next week with another episode. If there's anyone you'd like to hear interviewed, feel free to list them in the comments, and uh, we'll do our best to make it happen.